Not too long ago, a paramedic uh, down in the Dallas-Fort Worth area uh, was asked on a local uh, Dallas TV talk show program, uh, what was the most unusual and challenging 9-11 call that they've, uh, had, he ever had to respond to? And he said, well, recently we got a call from that big white church that sits up on top of the hill at the corner of 11th Street and Walnut Avenue. And he said a frantic usher called. He was concerned during the worship service because an elderly man passed out in the pew and he appeared to be dead. And so the usher could find no pulse and there was no noticeable breathing. And so the interviewer said, well, what was so unusual and demanding about that particular call? And the paramedic said, well, so we carried out four guys before we finally found the dead one. Well, this is our, our last week in the 30-day challenge that we've been having about uh, All In and a challenge to the church. And um, we, we based it upon looking at the early church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And that was a, that was a wonderful experience just to, to look at that church. And when you look at that church, you've got to see that it was an extraordinary church. Wonderful things were taking place. Exciting things were happening. And before we leave that at the end of this week, uh, I just want us to go back and hear those words again. Here's, what, here's how that church is described. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, when you hear the description there and you read those words, that was an exciting time. And that church, that church in Jerusalem was anything but dead, Right? Notice some of those things that characterize them. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They had a deep commitment to spiritual growth. They were filled with awe. I mean, what God was doing and, and coming down to them, there was just a sense of awe about the whole place. There were wonders and miraculous signs that were taking place. They met together every day. They shared meals in homes with glad and sincere hearts. They were all praising God, worshiping Him, praising Him, celebrating Him. They enjoyed the favor of the people. That is, that they were so genuine in their faith and their life that they were accepted into that pre-Christian culture. And they were embraced and they were able to influence it. And then the last verse 47 says that day by day God added more people to their fellowship of faith. Day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now that was an exciting time. And that must have been an exciting church to be a part of. And I think as we look at it we'd have to say that it was a happy and it was a healthy and growing church. And the result of that is that God blessed it more and more every day as people were added to it. Now, as we've done your daily devotion reading and you had your Bible study times around that passage and around that trait on uh, Sunday mornings and we've preached about it, we've looked at these um, four out of the five so far traits or characteristics or purposes of that church. 
First of all, we saw that they were authentic community. They were real. They got real about their faith and about their life, and they were real with each other. It was authentic community. Secondly, we saw that they experienced worship as a lifestyle. It wasn't just on Sunday morning, but it was a lifestyle. And third, we saw that they had a commitment to spiritual growth. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to learn more about Jesus every day and the promises of God. And then, last week we looked at the fact that, that they lived a lifestyle of generosity. They managed their finances so that when needs came up, they could meet those needs in the life of the church. And it was just a, a lifestyle of generosity that they lived. And today we look at the fifth one. If you read it during the week and had, to, had your time in the Bible study class this morning, you know that it was about sharing the good news with people without Christ. And that is to say that they were, they were working on evangelism. They were sharing their faith. They were telling the stories of what happened to them. They were telling about Jesus Christ. And as they did that, their number continued to grow. Before Pentecost, there were about 120 people mentioned who were together there in the early chapter of uh, the book of Acts. Then the Spirit was unleashed at Pentecost, and Peter preached his great sermon, the first sermon following Pentecost. And the Bible tells us that 3,000 new believers became a part of the church that day. Then you remember in Acts 2.47, that last verse describing it, it says that every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. You look on over in Acts chapter 4 verse 4, and at one time 5,000 more new believers came to know Jesus Christ. Then in Acts chapter 6 verse 1 says, the believers rapidly multiplied. And verse 7 says, the number of believers greatly increased. Now why did that happen? It all happened because this church shared the exciting good news of Jesus Christ. And that is what we as the people of God, the church, that's what we are supposed to do as well. That's our mission. That's our purpose. Bill Hybels is pastor of Willow Creek Church in the Chicago area. And in his book entitled Courageous Leadership uh, wrote these words. He said, I believe that only one power exists on this sorry planet that can transform the human heart. It's the power of the love of Jesus Christ, the love that conquers sin and wipes out shame and heals wounds and reconciles enemies and patches broken dreams and ultimately changes the world one life at a time. And what grips my heart every day is the knowledge that the radical message of that transforming love has been given to the church. We have to hear that. We have to understand that and embrace that. There's no other group of people, no organization, no organism, no gathering of people that has been given that challenge to preach the good news of Jesus Christ that will change the culture in which we live today. But it's been given to us, the church, because of our relationship with Christ. So it's the church and the message of Jesus that we proclaim that has that power and that potential to change our culture to the glory of God. You see, that growth that we see experienced there uh, in Acts really wasn't a multiplication of growth. It was really an exponential growth explosion. It wasn't just addition. It wasn't just a multiplying. But it was an exponential explosion of growth as people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was all a result of the fact that when the church is what God intends for it to be, then growth becomes contagious. Now, how do we go about that? 
What's the answer to that for us? Well, um, on, on Twitter this week, Ed Stetcher, who is um, uh, a church planner, a pastor, and also uh, works with Lifeway, uh, which is our Southern Baptist uh, institution from which we get uh, material and all of that, uh, he tweeted a very important message. And it, he said this, God is sending the church as agents of God's kingdom in the world. Now, what that says to us is that we have to take very seriously uh, our mandate that's been given to us to proclaim the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. See, we have to be reminded that our mission is to complete the mission. And that mission is what was given to the early believers and also is ours now that as the Father sent Jesus, He now has sent us out into the world with that message of being reconciled to God. We are the only people, the church, people who belong to God, who have that awesome privilege of sharing, proclaiming, telling the good news of Jesus Christ that has the power to change lives and ultimately the culture in which we live. Now, I want us to look a little bit farther into the book of Acts and chapter 5 to see uh, some more about how this church had um, effects that were ramifications of their belief and their actions that we pick up on in Acts chapter 5 beginning in verse 17. We're going to read through verse 42. It's a rather lengthy reading, but I think we need to hear it all so we can understand everything that's taking place. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in in the public jail. But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail the officers did not find them there so they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors but when we opened them we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in His name, He said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him to His own right hand as Prince and Savior that He might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, 
Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago Thutius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Powerful section of Scripture that tells us how that early church experienced such exponential growth. It's because they never stopped teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in spite of the threat from the local government officials. Now, understand what takes place when we enter into chapter 5 of the book of Acts. It has the unfortunate scene about Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, as you end Acts chapter 4, you see that there are those who are, who are bringing money and laying it at the apostles' feet. And Barnabas is one who sold a piece of land and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And here comes Ananias, and he says that he too sold a piece of property, and here's the money from it. And it wasn't the full amount. You remember that? And the result of that was, as he was challenged about it, boom, he dropped dead. And the same thing happened then to his wife when she came in later. And they asked her, did you sell this piece of land for such and such a money? And she said, yes. And they said, well, then why did you lie about it? And boom, she too dropped dead. Now, let me give you a little piece of heart, a piece of mind in your heart here. They did not drop dead by the power of God because they didn't give anything. If that was true, half of every Southern Baptist church would die on Sunday morning. But they died because they lied about their giving. And God knew that they didn't give like they said they did. Now, then we move on to see, and, and leading up to verse 17, the beginning of what we looked at today as our text, that the uh, apostles continued to preach and teach Jesus, and exciting times were there. And they saw that more and more people were responding in faith to the message. In fact, verse 14, Acts 5 says, More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Now it was then that the religious leaders became furious and, and actually a little bit jealous. They had the apostles arrested, arrested again because of their excited, contagious faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Simply because they were going about the mission that Jesus came to start. Jesus said He came with His life, mission, and purpose to seek and save that which was lost. And to fulfill that mission, these early believers were evangelists. And evangelism is simply by life and by lip telling the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. As God's people, we are called. To be concerned about the spiritual condition of people who do not know Jesus Christ, who do not have a relationship with Him. And by life and by lips, we're to proclaim Jesus Christ to them. 
Many, many years ago, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great pastor, great preacher, led a great church, said this. He said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. I think that early church had that heart understanding and that heart compassion for that. Now we should too. And I think we can if we pattern ourselves after the pattern that we see here with this early church and this group of disciples and apostles who were so excited about their faith. First of all, they were com- they were compelled by a mandate. They knew that they had experienced the good news of Jesus Christ. And they knew that it was given to them then the mandate to fulfill the mission, to carry out that mission as they became evangelists and they shared the good news of Jesus Christ. They were told not to. They continued to do it. They were thrown in jail a second time. This time the religious leaders meant business because the Scripture says they put them in the public jail, which was a place where it was a holding place for notorious thieves and robbers and murderers. And here were the poor evangelists put in there for that. Then we just read a few moments ago how God intervened through the angel and released them and gave them their mandate. There were three components about that mandate as to how they were to, to share the good news. First of all, they had to go. The angel said go. Well, obviously they wanted to leave the jail. They wanted to get out of there. But it also meant that they needed to go and get out to where the people were to begin to share the message of Christ. You remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20? Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and helping them to learn everything that I have taught you. Well, oftentimes we think that the imperative there is the go, but that's not. The imperative is to make disciples. It literally says, as you go, while you're going, where you go. And if they were a going society back then, look at us now. We catch ourselves going and going. Sometimes we get on the road and we don't even know where we're going. We're so busy. We're so used to going in these circles and going always in activities and all those kinds of things. If we could ever understand that the circle of our life where we go day in and day out and week in and week out and month by month, that's our mission field. That's where God has placed us. That's where we encounter people that we can build relationships with, begin to pray with and pray about, and then be able to have the opportunity, earn the right to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to go to where people are. The second thing the angel said was stand. And, and that meant for them to literally take a stand. The word that's used there literally means to, to take your position, take your stance, remain firm. So the angel was saying to them, remain firm in your faith, stand boldly. It's also a word that could come out of the military, meaning that maybe a commando unit has taken a strategic hill in a battle, and they take that hill and then they dig in and they hold it. It's a reminder to us. That if we're going to get anywhere in this evangelism process by lips and by mouth, our mouth has to tell the good news of Christ and our life has to live that. We've got to stand firm in our faith and know what the biblical convictions are and realize that we have to do that where God has placed us in our mission field. Then the third thing they said was, the angel said, was tell. They were to proclaim the full message of the new life in Jesus Christ. And I'll go back and underscore that phrase because that's so important. That, that's the good news about this new life in Jesus Christ. 
Now look at their courage to speak up. When they were brought back before the local authorities, they said, didn't we warn you? Didn't we tell you? Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. He said, we, were having, we have an unfinished task at hand. The mission has not yet been completed. It's just begun. And if we are ever going to be successful in changing our culture and bringing us back to biblical values, we're going to have to engage in evangelism and by life and lips share this good news of Jesus Christ. They understood their mandate. Second thing we notice is that they communicated the gospel message. They were told to proclaim the entire message, the full message of this new life in Jesus Christ. So here's what they proclaimed. First of all, the person of Jesus. They proclaimed the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. And at the same time, whether they pointed their finger or not, they, they made it clear by their words that the religious leaders were the ones who were guilty of having Jesus crucified. And He made them know that without any shadow of a doubt. And then they say in verse 30, "...the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead." whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. That's just another word for cross when you use the word tree there in the Scripture. So, they preached the person of Jesus. Secondly, they preached the pardon of Jesus. Look in verse 31. God exalted him to his own right hand as Prince and Savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. You see, it's in the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have that new life with the forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God and the promise of eternity in heaven. And we have to proclaim that pardon that Jesus Christ brings. He mercifully forgives sinners who will acknowledge their sin and repent of that sin and embrace Jesus as Savior. Then the third thing they preached was that the presence of the Holy Spirit. In verse 32 they said, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. So, we need to understand that the gift of the Holy Spirit comes to every one of us when we accept salvation. When we invite Jesus into our life, the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit comes to gift us with spiritual gifts that we are to use in ministry. But the Holy Spirit is also present today to comfort us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to empower us for service in the Kingdom of God. They knew that as they proclaimed the message of Christ. And then the third thing we would see is that they were commendable in their manner of witnessing. And Gamaliel spoke on their behalf and said, you know if this is of God there is nothing you can do to stop it. And it was of God and there was nothing that was going to stop it. And so the Sanhedrin agreed to that. They brought them in and they flogged them. And we almost kind of Almost kind of just gloss over that and say, hey, that boy, everything worked out well, didn't it? You got to remember, these disciples were beaten, those 39 lashes uh, with that whip, just like Paul experienced it, just like Jesus was. Those 39 lashes with that whip that had pieces of metal, a bone, or glass in it that just literally tore the flesh off their bodies. And did that deter them from their activity? Absolutely not. The scripture said that they said they were rejoicing in the fact that they were deemed worthy to suffer for our Lord. They didn't quit teaching. They did not quit teaching. They witnessed incessantly. Look at verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They were insistent in fulfilling their mission. 
Secondly, they witnessed intensely. They found themselves proclaiming the gospel both in religious settings, which would be in the temples, in the court, and in the homes, and in the community where they would encounter people. See, that's a message that says to us that wherever we are placed, wherever we go in life, whether it's a new job or a new opportunity in your job, or you got a new customer to call on, a new business to claim, you got somebody new comes to school, or you end up going to a new school, job transfer, whatever, you know, that there's a mission field that God has given to you. There's a mission field that God has given to you. So, I want to challenge you to think about something this week. Think about, you probably got your week mapped out already, you know what's ahead of you. Think about where God is going to place you this week and where your travel will take you. And think about the people there that you might be able to establish a relationship with and then be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And then also then you notice that they witnessed instructively. Two words define their witness in verse 42, teaching and proclaiming. See, the teaching part about evangelizing is, is teaching about God, teaching about Christ, teaching about the plan of salvation. You have to have people come to an understanding of what you want them to commit their life to. And so, there's that teaching aspect about the gospel and the scriptures and, and Jesus Christ and the fulfillment through Jesus Christ of all the promises that God made about the Messiah. That there He is. And it's that teaching that begins to open the heart and the mind to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that opens that person to receive Jesus Christ as Savior through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. That second part is proclaiming. That's where they had to come to the point after the teaching then to literally proclaim it and say, this is the gospel. That Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross by His choice in our place, in your place, to die for our sins so that He could be our Savior. He literally died, was buried, and on the third day God brought Him back to life. He ministered 40 more days on earth, and then He ascended into heaven. And one day He's coming back to claim the church. So, you got to proclaim that. That's the gospel message that has the power to change lives. We have to be able to announce the good news and call sinners to repent. You see, our mission, let's be reminded of it, our mission is to complete the mission that began with the Jerusalem church. And that's reaching out in love to those without Christ. Let me point out two things. Our responsibility is to be on mission for Christ and witness with the good news. That's our mandate. That's our mission. That's our part. God's part is to bring about the results. You notice in Acts 2.47 says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's God's work. That's His responsibility. We have to sow the seed. We have to share the good news. But it's ultimately God's responsibility to bring about the results. Now, we've talked about this exponential growth of the church, more than addition and really more than multiplication, but just exponential growth explosion. I want you to think with me about the possibility of something. Let's say, let's take this month of November, it's 30 days, right? 30 days have September, April, June, and November, right? right, December, the next month's got 31 days. What if on day one of November or a 30-day month, 
A believer in Jesus Christ shares his or her faith with somebody else who's not a believer and wins that person to Christ and teaches them how to share that faith with somebody else. And then the next day they each win somebody else and they do the same thing. And the next day those people do the same thing. See, on day one there's one Christian. On day two there are two. On day three there are four. After 14 days there would be 8,192 new believers. That's fantastic, isn't it? All right, after 21 days, there would be over 1 million new believers. Now, say it's only a 30-day month in November. That would be an end result of 530 million-plus people as new believers. You want to say, okay, let's do it a 31-day month like December? That means then you would have over 1 billion New believers, 1,073,741,824 new believers. Just to dazzle you with a little bit of math, okay? Now, let's face reality. What's the likelihood of that happening? Probably, probably slim to none at all, okay? And see, it's nice and grandiose to think about, ooh, look at all the billions of people in a month's time who can come to know Christ. But the reality is most people don't work at it doing it that way. So let me bring it down to where I think we can handle it. Let's think a little bit smaller. In your life, isn't there someone, whether it's a family member, a friend, a co-worker, somebody at school, Somebody down the, down the hall at your dorm at college? Somebody uh, that you encounter at where you shop or where you recreate? You know, we've got plenty of kids that are on ball teams and there's parents to meet and all of that, relationships to establish. Isn't there one person that you can think of who does not know Jesus Christ? Now, what if every one of us who attended today, 8.45 and 11 o'clock, made the decision that we would be committed this year to sharing the good news with that person. Build a relationship, earn the right to teach about Jesus, and then when the moment was right through prayer, you're able to share the gospel of Christ. And that person responds. Do you understand the potential that that would be? That could be six, seven, eight hundred people to come to know Christ. Now, wouldn't that be exciting? And think about baptizing those people. That would be exciting. We'd probably have to take out a loan to pay the water bill, but that'd be worth it, wouldn't it? Think about that challenge. Everybody can accept that challenge. That's easy. That's simple. You put it down in small terms. Each one win one. Remember, if you're part of the church, it's your responsibility to fulfill the mission. In uh, the book entitled Leadership Lessons of Billy Graham, Graham Keith, who was a treasurer of the Billy Graham Association, a longtime friend of Billy Graham, talk, tells a story about traveling in the elevator with Billy Graham. And another man in the elevator recognized him and he says, hey, aren't you Billy Graham? And Billy Graham said, yes, I am, just as humbly as he could. And the man said, well, I want you to know that you are a great man. And Billy Graham said, no, I'm not. I just have a great message. And he has taken that message around the world, hasn't he? We have a great message. God loves you. He sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins.
Would you believe in what Jesus did for you? Would you claim him as your Savior? Would you commit your life to him? See, that's the message we have to proclaim. That's how we fulfill our mission, is by telling the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's accept that challenge. Father, as we bow before you right now, we thank you uh, for the challenge you give to us from the example of these early believers in Christ and how they were excited about their faith. They were not uh, they were not ashamed of their faith. And as a result of that, they shared their faith openly. And they saw you move in mighty and powerful ways through your Holy Spirit. And they saw lives changed. Father, help us as your people, this church at Spring Valley, as your people, uh, to be on mission to share the good news of Jesus Christ as the only hope of changing our culture. May we accept that challenge. May we just be committed to finding building a relationship with, and sharing the good news with one person in the coming days. And may we do it all to your glory you speak to us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.